John Moylan, John Joseph Patrick Moylan, to be very honest with you. And the reason I got the uh, three names was um, John Joseph, my father's name, so they, they were going to name me John Joseph. And then I was born on the 16th of March, 1928, and I was baptized on St. Patrick's Day. With harder times, a lack of work and a crushed economy, millions of us have left the rolling green hills of Ireland behind us, searching for a better life in faraway places. John Moylan from Nina and Count Tipperary left for all those reasons way back in 1949. And the uh, Monsignor who baptised me said, well, you know, it's St. Patrick's Day, so we'll tag the name Patrick onto him too, so John Joseph Patrick Moylan. <laughs> That's my full name. And I was born in Ranaline, which is next door to where we and the old house over here today. So it was sad to see him go away. We went to the North Wall that time, and his uncle and aunt was with him, like, you know. It was very sad. He just wanted to go, and that was it. And he got... And he went places. I remember it well, yeah. And there was a train strike on, and then he had to go by bus, and the bus passed our house going to Clark Jordan. And uh, we were all... We all waited at the gate for him, because when he went into town to get the bus, we knew he'd be passing back again. And my mother was there, and she was very, very upset. Very, well, we all were, when he passed again in the bus, you know. I remember distinctly. He was... um, uh, he'd be like he was very much missed on the farm because you didn't come home every year, you know. It isn't like now they can come every couple of months, but not that time, no. How are you? Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Not too bad. Just running slightly late, but uh... that's all right. No problem. We're not going anywhere. This is the second time I've met John. He's still tall, stocky and strong. He's a hearing aid now and his hands are toughened with stumpy worn fingers from years of hard manual labour. But he's still the same grey-haired, bright-smiling man I've met before. This is where Dan lives now. All right, OK. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the original. Oh, that's it. Should yeah. we might take a walk in? He is at his brother Dan's house in Ratnalin outside Nina. It's where he grew up. Hi. How are you doing? Sweet, how are you? I'm not too bad at all now. Grand. Yeah. Is is Dan around as well? Is he? He's not actually. Oh, he's. he's a baby. Yeah, yeah, he, he, yeah. Has, he has a bit of a stroke. He can't talk anyway, so if you ask him or something, he won't be able to. He wouldn't be able to. Uh, he, he can't no. answer, so. Right. Yeah. 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 So. And he's getting ready for the highest honour Nina can give anyone a civic reception. I went into, into uh, see Tony Sher the other day. Yeah. And I said, uh, what's going to happen? He said, oh, well, he says, you're not going to get any money. He said, you get a piece of paper with your name on it. And he said, you might get a sandwich. He said, that's it. <laughs> San Francisco Airport is where I first met John. That's about six years ago. And he arrived there to collect me in his big Mercedes with a number plate reading Nina. I was writing about him because I had left home to travel around the world and I was funding my journey by selling articles to newspapers about Tipperary people. I was the oldest boy of a, of a big family. I probably would have got the farm if I had stayed, you know. And even with that, and it was a fine farm, it was a fine farm too. I never regretted that though. 
uh, Dan was the, was the one that stayed. God bless him, he did uh, work very hard here to keep things going. And uh, I left, and that was it, you know. You say you have no regrets about leaving. No regrets. I never regretted the day I left here. And I made up my mind. I had my mind made up. I said, it wasn't for me. It would be wrong if I stayed. And uh, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have been a good farmer. So I, I went, and I actually didn't know where I was going, to be very honest with you. I knew I wanted to go, and I did, and I left, and never turned back. There are probably a million stories like John's and you've probably heard them from family and friends who have left Ireland to chase dreams in far-flung places. But for John, America was the greener grass on the other side and he ended up getting something you'd only expect in a Hollywood film. But before we go there... Let's go back to the start, an uncle's wedding in Nina in 1948. I was 18 years old, I was getting very edgy, and I knew in my heart and soul that, uh, that farming was not for me, that I, I just didn't want to be here forever. So Dan Darcy then decided to get married, and he had to be about 52 years old in 1948, and uh, Dan Darcy was the one that stayed home on the farm. The match was made for him with... No Neomara from uh, Limerick. Dan Darcy invited me to be best man, and I said, of course, naturally, that was a big thrill. And I got myself, they got, I got a new suit and a little money, and I was doing fine. And then I went to the, I went to the wedding, and I was the youngest person there, without a doubt. And uh, Monsignor Hamilton, who was parish priest in Nina later years, at the reception then, uh, when he got up, and he gave a toast to the happy young couples. And I, it really struck me then. I said, I'm the youngest guy there. I was 18 years old. And these guys were happy young couples over here. <laughs> and I, I said to myself, this is it. This is it. I, this, is, this is the straw that broke the camel's back, as they say. And the uh, next day I went down and I got my passport. I applied for my passport. And I left the following March. It was clear at the wedding that any hope of John getting a farm had disappeared when his uncle Dan Darcy got married. Today that land is still Darcy land and it's run by Dan Darcy's sons, Michael and John. My, my father had, um, had two farms as it was at the time. The prospect of two farms. and uh, Naturally enough, I mean, the, the Highlands would have expected to get the farms if he hadn't got married and they would have got it. So Dan or John's father would have had John John Mylan would have had farms for three of his sons. He had four sons. Three of them would have been fixed up. Mm. So my father got married and two of them went <laughs> went west. Literally went west. We, we ended up getting us. So. <laughs> that finished that. <laughs> That's literally what happened. He realised then, I suppose, that he had no prospects in Ireland. He mm. had he had three younger brothers, and I suppose times were tough. And he'd, you know, he'd have to wait a long time for the farm in Retinaline. So the farm in Grange was obviously gone. So I suppose he made up his mind then that he would go to Canada or America. I think he went to Canada first. So that's, I suppose he was a wise man. He saw what was ahead. Has it changed? 
No, my father built that for a thousand dollars. Thousand dollars. Thousand pounds. Back in 1927, he started building and finished in 28. Finishing time for me to get born here. This has been added, though. This is the bathroom. There's no bathroom in those days, and there was no electricity. Hello, doggy. We're looking out onto land that you might have worked before yeah, you left for the site. Uh, this, this is, I ploughed that field across the way there, and uh, I ploughed this one over here, the other side of the fence. See, the fence has been taken out now, see, and then see where that first pole is up there? So, and there was a fence across there, so I ploughed that field up there. This one here we didn't. This was grazing here. But the one above that, I, I ploughed that uh, several times. But there was a family fight too. John's nephew Tommy says it all happened at the back of the home place, an old grey farmhouse that's been renovated recently. But more precisely, it happened outside the old red rusty roofed shed that's still there today. Um, I suppose at, at the time in, in rural Ireland, back in the 30s and 40s, it was the eldest son always inherited the farm. And we grew up with a story at home that when times were tough at home and I suppose there wasn't work for, for all, the, all the boys on the farm at home, that their only option was, was, was the immigration boat um, to America at the time. And we grew up with a story at home that it was down to myself and my to my father and Uncle John as regards who would inherit a farm and who would stay at home and work the farm. And the story, I, I don't know whether it's true or not, but the story went that the two of them went up to an old haggard that we had up at the back of the, at the, at the end of the farm behind the hay barn. And the two of them fought it out amongst themselves as regards who would stay, work the farm and who would emigrate to America. And John seemingly won that battle. <laughs> whether there's any truth in it or not, I'm not too sure. John has a different story as regards why he left for America. Um, but, but that's the story that we always grew up with at home. Memory can be a strange thing, though. Maybe it's a case of we remember what we want to, or maybe it's the way we want people to remember things that are important to us. But in his memories, John's recollection is that the fight wasn't a fight, it was just words. I've heard, I've heard a story, I don't know whether you can recount it to me or not, but that behind the old shed, yourself and Dan went out to have a talk about who would run the farm. That's oh, what, yeah. Is that true? Is it what it's, happened? It did happen, yeah. Yeah, we, we uh, decided to know that, because Dan was thinking about moving. You know, one of us had to go, see, sort of. It wasn't, it wasn't a, um, uh, there was nothing, nothing, uh, it was a friendly, we just had a friendly conversation, you know. It wasn't, uh, I, I was talking to Tommy, his son, and yeah. he says it was different, that you, you actually stood up to each other and, and argued quite strenuously about uh, it. Is that no, true? No, I didn't think it was, no, I don't think we argued, no. I don't remember arguing about it. No, I don't think so. I, I really wouldn't, because um, we always got along. You know, there was never any argument between us that I knew of, you know, except maybe the usual stuff when kids are kids and that. But no, no, it was just that uh, I guess he was thinking about moving, see. And actually, he was thinking about joining the army or something then. I think that's what he had in his mind or something, something anyway. And uh, so I said no, that I was <laughs> that I wanted to go, I guess. But there wasn't a big argument. No, I wouldn't. Maybe, maybe Dan sees saw it different, but I didn't. There is one thing for sure. John was escaping what was holding him back. And like anyone trying to escape from what's comforting and familiar, he was determined to change parts of his life. 
and he was going to do that by leaving everything he knew and taking only his memories with him. We used to go to the movies up here in the old town hall on a Saturday afternoon for two pennies, tuppens, and usually cowboy movies. And then I remember, you won't believe this one, I remember in the 30s there, and the movie tone news had come on at, in, in, uh, in, in the halftime, you know, between the shows. I remember seeing the building of the Golden Gate Bridge and the opening of it and all that in 1937. And, of course, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, which I ended up as a director on there, and still I am a director there. But um, it was amazing how, it, how everything evolved, you know, afterwards. Did you kind of say in your mind, that's where I want to be, or was that even in your mind? No, that wasn't in my mind. It's just that I saw it and I said, you know, someday, someday I'd like to see it, kind of, you know. I never thought, uh, in fact, I, I, I knew I was going to, all I knew then was I wanted to get away. I guess I, I, was, in, I was kind of a mixed up kid at 18 years old. I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew I had to go. That was it. And uh, there was a couple of things was wrong at that particular point in my life. First of all, I had no education much, and I did, although I did read a lot, I was very good. I, I read a lot of history. I loved history. I read a lot of books. My father always had books, and in fact, I, I read a lot about. I, I knew a lot about the United States before I ever got there. But anyway, I had when I left, I definitely was going to change my life. So I said, I was, first of all, I'm going to quit drinking. That's number one, because I did like uh, you know a few pints when I was younger, and. I didn't want it to get a hold of me because I saw too many people getting in trouble over that. John never gave up the drink and he still enjoys the odd old tipple. There's a few, there's a few, there's a few spare seats there if you want them. Tuesday, October 6th, 2009. It's the night of John's civic reception in his hometown of Nina. Mayor, elected members, county manager, town manager, um, John... And Phyllis Moyle, and ladies and gentlemen, I would like to welcome you all here this evening to this Nina Town Council Civic Reception, which um, will be accorded to John Moylan in recognition of his lifetime's work with the Irish American community in San Francisco. Um, my name is Donald Purcell. I am the town clerk here with Nina Town Council. Very briefly, while, while I heard of John's work myself that he was doing in San Francisco, I suppose it wasn't until earlier this year when we got the opportunity to visit um, that we really got to see the, the marvellous work and his, I suppose, involvement in civic life, union work um, over, over the many years. Um, a lot of you will know that John has played a leading role in the development of the union movement in America and helped greatly many Irish and other immigrant people to attain work and to get involved in the community. John has also made a great contribution to the United Irish Societies in San Francisco and has served as a president and member of the board of directors of the Golden Gate Bridge Authority for many years. We all know that, that Tipperary and Nina is never very far from from John when he's away and I suppose it was only when we arrived and we saw the registration on the car with Nina on it we knew that we were um, amongst our own so um, Getting to tonight hasn't been easy for John but throughout all of his time and even until now he has never forgotten his roots Oh well of course naturally I never forgot where I came from I never forgot my religion you know, who your parents are, and, you know, we had a good name here. You want to make sure you keep the good name. You're not going to get, you're not going to, just because you're in Canada or America or someplace, the Moylan family, you want to, you know, make sure that, you know, you keep that good name, you know. But I'll tell you about advice, though. Uh, Nick Darcy, great, uh, great guy, great hurler in his day. 
he came to see me going off in the boat. He says, and of course, those days, if you remember, well, you wouldn't remember, but uh, there was a big communist scare, you know. Everybody, if you join the labor movement or anything else, you were a communist. So anyway, he says, don't join any secret organizations. He says, don't join any labor unions or anything like that. He said, they're all communists. And the funny part of the whole thing was, as soon as I had a chance from the United States, the first thing I did was join the labor. I became active in labor, in the labor movement. And uh, I didn't find any communists there, you know, just working class people, that was all. It's funny how sometimes when you follow your gut and you do what people tell you not to do, that your own decisions can be life-changing. In John's case, he joined the Plasterers' Union and that would change his life. After leaving in 1949, John arrived by boat to Halifax, Nova Scotia. He managed a chicken farm before taking up plastering in Toronto and less than two years later, he made his way to the west coast of America and found himself a new home, San Francisco. So anyway, I saw this ad for a plasterer's helper. I called him up and they said, well, come on. They went out and I went to work there and I worked with two Polish fellows. And, uh, you know, and for whatever reason, I just got good at it. And then I decided to learn the trade properly, and I did. I joined the union and everything. And, and the Monday morning, I went down, 1951, March of 51, to the union hall in San Francisco, and I went in and introduced myself. I put my, had my book, my transfer book, and I put my book in. And Tuesday morning, I went to work in San Francisco. The reason we got into the United States then was because they needed tradespeople. They were very bad need of tradespeople then. And if you had a good record, which I had, uh, you know, working steady and all that, and I had a few dollars in the bank, and, and uh, we weren't depending on anybody, so... Uh, they wanted us, and we had no problem getting in. All we had to do was go down and sign up, and after a month, you were in. And uh, that was it. Went from there. But before the significance of joining the Union would become clearer, he was drafted to the Army. War had come to Korea. Back and forth across the 38th parallel they went. The U.S. forces on one side, Red China on the other, and the Koreans in between. And I spent uh, two years over in Germany during the Korean War. I wasn't due to take get a leave until I was six months there, and I wasn't there exactly six months. And I got home then to Nina, of course, and I arrived in Nina. I seen my parents for the first time and all. That was that was the best part. How did your parents react to you arriving home in oh, a God, uniform? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they loved it. And my father, I mean, there was never anything between my father and I. We, like, we didn't agree on things when I was working for him. That's, that's okay. But that was actually, you know... I'd believe this, but I never had a drink with my father when I was when I worked for him, never. And when I came home, uh, I was sitting home one Sunday evening, and he said, "Let's go have a let's go have a drink." And I kind of, you know, I was thinking back to the old days, and I said, "My God!" So yeah, I said I will, and I had the best night of my life. I swear to God. Was that really the first and time you talked to him properly? Do you think the first time actually that we ever had a good conversation, man to man, friendly, friendly, you know without having to answer for something, you know, when I was, <laughs> all the girls, I mean, they said I had a hell of a time, and Nina I couldn't keep the girls away from me, you know. They thought I was the, the, the best-looking thing ever happened. <laughs> so it was, it was fun. And, uh, you know, I, of course, I was always kind of close to the girls anyway, but I just got closer when they when saw me. And in those days, see, we couldn't wear civilian clothes. 
we had to wear a uniform. And uh, I was the first American that showed up, I guess, for a long time there, you know. So I was only away, what, three, or three years then or so. Then when I was in good shape, you know, after taking basic training and everything, and and uh, down at Camp Roberts, out in the sun every day, and I was I looked great, you know, nice tan and so forth. I was never in better shape in my life, you know, I was ready for anything, you know. John, you told me about when you returned home one time to Unipol's in your uniform. Yeah, Bobby, Bobby Paul was there then. Bobby was her father. And, of course, they're all very much nationalist people, you know. Anyway, I went in there one night, and I was having a drink, and somebody said, and I said, where's Bobby, you know? Because I used to go in there before I left. And, oh, he's in the room there with a bunch of guys. I went in there, was, they had some kind of an IRA meeting or something. Of course, you're wearing your <laughs> uniform. uniform. Oh, yeah. Come on in, John. Come on in. Come on in. I want to talk. I said, geez, Mary and Joseph. I said, let me out of here. I don't want to talk to you guys. You know, I said, if anybody found out that me in uniform, an American, talking to some IRA guys, I said, and I have to go to England on the way home. Holy smoke. I said, no, hey, please, let me out of here. <laughs> so anyway, it was, it was all fun. It was a kind of a fun thing. Of course, that pub is still there today. The pub is still there today, and I still go there. And in fact, if you ever in there again, you'll see my picture in, in, the, in the parlor, you know, the parlor part. The departed are almost more fondly thought of than the ones that stay at home. For John's two younger sisters, Philomena and Bridget, this was the case. Any time John came home, he was given celebrity status. You wouldn't remember John going no, away? No, not really. I only remember coming home, taking the car from us. <laughs> taking the car? And taking the car, the family car. We had nothing then after that for fortnight. Mm-hmm. He used to come home uh, when he was stationed in Germany. Can yes. you remember what that was like, yes. the first time you saw him? He came home with a, it was a, um, the American uniform. Are they? Yeah. Uniform, John? Yeah. 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 And my mother was very proud of him and my father and nearly the red carpet had bought for him. <laughs> and that's all we know. We said, Johnny's coming. Everything would be cooked. That's it. Mm. Well, when you say everything would be cooked, would there be... She, she was his pride and joy. Do you understand? She was mad about him. The rest of us were forgotten about. <laughs> mm. That's the truth. <laughs> John's life was now in America. Because he had served with the army, he was a US citizen, so he returned there and took up his old job working as a plasterer. So then in uh, 1969, then I went to work for the union. I was elected. I was president of the local before that. You know, I was always active in the, in the union, always uh, from the time I went to San Francisco until when I retired. Because he was president of the San Francisco Plasterers Union, all sorts of doors opened to John. And this meant he was able to help job seekers from Ireland whenever they arrived to the city. And it's something that his family is intensely proud of. His niece, Breed Mackey, explains. And I see what he does over in San Francisco as well, with the Irish and the Americans as well. And how well known he is over there. It's unbelievable, the amount of people that know him. And a um, great person. He'll welcome anyone who comes to his door. I'm still a member of the Knights of Columbus, although I don't get involved in any, I don't go to meetings or anything. I'm just a member. Uh, the Hibernians, big time. That's an Irish national organization. And politics, you know, involved in politics. I belong to Irish American Democratic Club. 
the All-Ireland Social Club, um, the United Irish Cultural Centre. How, how did you become a director of the Golden Gate Bridge, or what's that about? Oh, the Golden Gate Bridge, I was appointed. My thing was, if I could talk to a politician, I got something going, see, you know. When, when you're working for a union, for example, I can't, uh, I can't just say, well, I'm not going to talk to you because you're a Republican. My job is to get the best deals for my union, and if I have to go talk to a Republican to get them, that's what I have to do. I'm interested to know how you helped Irish people uh, going to San Francisco when they arrived to San Francisco and they mightn't have had any social security number or anything like that. They wouldn't have been able to work. What did you do when someone came knocking on your door? When anybody came in, it wasn't just Irish people. Anybody came through my door when I was ran my union. The only thing I ever wanted from them was a social security number. If you came in to me and you said tomorrow morning I'd like to join a union, I said, do you have a social security number? No, I don't. Well, I said, I'll go get one. And with the Irish guys, I'd send them over to a fellow called, and I don't know whether I, I I'm not going to mention, I shouldn't mention the guy's name, I guess. And I'd send them over to him, and I said, he's going to go over. I said, go over and talk to this gentleman. And uh, what you'll do is tell him that you uh, want to know where you're going to, Where's the right place to go get a social security number? And what I meant was what government agency you go to, see. You know, I'd kind of, he'll tell you what where to go. And, of course, if he had it all set up, he'd give him a social security number, and that was it. And, of course, they came back to me to have a social security number. And, and I was, then I would sign him up, and I said, now you, um, I, I'll, I'm, if you are a plasterer, I'll be able to dispatch you. Things got better and better, and during his time as president of the union, membership doubled, and by 1992... He had grown the union's pension fund from $800,000 to $130 million. To be very honest with you, I, I, was, I did a very good job for the union. I worked very hard for them and I got them good benefits. And we were able to get a good pension plan. I, my thing was that we're all part and parcel of the industry. And I used to preach that. In other words, uh, even though the contractors were the ones who put up the money, we put up our... We had the brawn, as they say, and the skill, and we had a very good apprenticeship program, which we developed, and uh, very proud of what happened. And uh, I loved it. See, I loved I loved working for the union. I loved the I loved the politics of it, and I also loved what I was able to do and able to help people. You know, and I have I've helped a lot a lot of people, more ways than one. Anyway, it's a great pleasure to have you here, John. And I'll hand over now to the Mayor, Nina. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Donald. Uh, I'd like to concur with everything that Donald says and welcome John and the Milan family and friends. Councillor Dowd had initiated this after her trip to San Francisco, and I think she wants to say a few words. Anybody who would meet this man would just have to be impressed. Um, of all the people I've met, I think he is one of the most amazing people. After John's retirement and an unexpected heart bypass, he went into beer brewing and vodka distilling with one of his sons. Another son, Michael, was elected to take over his role in the union and he's now one of the biggest union players in the US. But for John, politics was something he couldn't shake off and it began to play a bigger and bigger role in his life. Like, you know, I got involved, I've been involved in politics. When I needed something, I was able to... You know, as I say, I call in the chips. And if I needed some help someplace, I was able to I was able to call and get it because I had already helped them out somehow, you know. I worked hard for Diane, Diane Feinstein when she ran for office. 
when she was a supervisor in San Francisco and she was mayor. In fact, uh, she was the one that appointed me to the to positions that I was in, commissions and, and the Cork Sister City Committees, I was chairman of that. And also um, on the bridge board, she appointed me there. And I've been friends and now she's a, one of the top senators in the United States. So I can call her if I need her. If I need them, we're still good friends, you know. It was billed a garden party, but the rain sent them scurrying for cover as President Clinton welcomed his Irish guests to last night's White House reception. We arranged the Irish weather here tonight <laughs> to remind you that we are all here under a very large tent in more ways than one. I know you... Bridge building was very much the president's theme this week. In fact, I got a hug from Hillary one time. What was it like getting a hug from <laughs> Hillary Clinton? Was it as cold as people might imagine? <laughs> <laughs> it happened. I'll tell you when it happened in 1995. It was when Bill Clinton was involved in the North of Ireland issue. And he invited to Washington uh, people from both sides of the border. Called, it was called a cross-border conference in Washington. Today, as the conference was coming to a close, his officials were saying that important economic bridges had also been built. Out of this, we hope, will come not just the enthusiasm and spirit, which has been so evident here over the past few days, uh, but tangible results that will benefit the people uh, of Northern Ireland and the border counties. And people from both sides of the border were there, and we were invited, myself and Jack Henning were invited from California. The two labor leaders were invited from California at the time. <laughs> we, we went in the night then, had a big party in the White House, in the lawn, they had a big tent out there, and it was raining that night too. Jeez. Went, we went in anyway, Jack Kenning and myself. We walked together right through the White House in the front door, which is very unusual. And the Marine Corps, the Marines were standing there and saluting us and everything else. And then we went out in the tent in the back and, and uh, Hillary and uh, Bill came down. We were having a party out there. We had an Irish, some Irish group playing. So Hillary came around and shaking hands with everybody. And I said, you know, I said, and, you know, of course, I get, had a drink or two and I got brave. And I said, you know, my wife would like this. I said, if you would give me a big, give me a hug. I could tell my wife about it. She did. <laughs> yeah. Were you involved in any way with the peace process? Uh, yeah, I was, but uh, not that, not right in there. But I was involved naturally. You know, every time when uh, when anybody came, you know, I was there. I was always there helping out. And uh, I knew I met Jerry Adams many times and Martin McGuinness. Uh, I trusted these guys, and I still trust them today. I like Adams very much. I like Martin McGuinness and Mitch McLaughlin and the, the and the, the rest of these. You know, the rest of them came over there, and they were always I trusted them. Why were you meeting people like Adams and McGuinness? I guess it's because um, I, I first of all, uh, see, I was very I was always involved with the uh, Irish Council. Whoever the Irish Council was in San Francisco, I was involved with them. And that, because I was involved in politics of the, of the city, you know, been, see, I was always involved with whoever was the mayor of the city, I was with them. When Feinstein was mayor, when Frank Jordan was mayor, I was, uh, I was always there. I was, the, I was the Irish guy, you know, that was involved with them. And uh, I guess from there, you know, uh, I was the one to be called. And... Um, I was I was the one that uh, that 
you got, you know, did things for what I could do. Sometimes, you know, you do what you can do. That's all you can do. Uh, making, helping out something Irish was my thing, whatever it was. And that's how John got to this ceremony at Nina Town Council. Civic receptions are usually reserved for All-Ireland winning teams, but today it's John's turn. Oh, I'm not going to keep you at all. I'd just like to welcome you to Nina, back home again, and uh, have a good night. For the next hour or so, councillors laud credit on John. They tell stories about their encounters or their family's encounters with John over the years. But there's one achievement nobody has mentioned. It's John's greatest one. It happened just before he was posted to Germany with the army. First time I saw Phyllis was, I tell you, it was at a dance. I just happened to be in the old Knights of the Red Branch Hall, the Clara B Hall as we call it. And uh, I saw her dancing down there with another guy. And I said, my God, that, you know, and I looked and she looks beautiful. She was beautiful. She's a beautiful woman. She still is a beautiful woman. My God, you know. And the only thing I thought at the time, you know, <laughs> come, <laughs> I still, I still a bit of a farmer in me, I guess. I said she's not a very big woman. Maybe she's too small. <laughs> in, in, like a, in the most, <laughs> I guess. Uh, when, when, you're, when you're young and you're brought up on the farm, <laughs> if, if you're going to stay in the farm, you always marry a woman that's a fine big woman that can do the work, you know. <laughs> oh, so, oh, so, oh, God. But anyway, of course, I saw her again. And again, next thing you know, she was. Um, we started going out together. I used, to, I used to see her around there, and, you know, they always kind of had my eye on her a little bit there, you know. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He kept asking me for a date. I don't know. I don't know. I guess. Uh, I guess I thought he was handsome. He was handsome, and he was nice. He treated me well. So I kept going out. Though. But um, it would be nice. Would be nice if Phyllis and I could go somewhere close together. That'd be nice. Uh, I wouldn't want to be here without her. And I think she'd feel the same way. So, but anyway, that's. We're not going to decide that. That's going to be decided by the man upstairs. That's the way it goes. Okay. I think that's the formalities over. So, oh, sorry, before we finish, we're going to ask the man at the moment himself, John, you might like to say a few words. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Uh, the fellow says, who's going to stop me? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, listen, I just want to thank you, Mr. Mayor, and uh, all the councillors and... Uh, uh, Virginia, thank you very much, and I was delighted to have you last year. And it's not so much, uh, I just want to make one thing clear. Uh, you know, I work usually with the Irish Council in San Francisco. So whoever comes to San Francisco from whatever county or whatever party, believe it or not, you know, we don't discriminate against anybody. It's, it's a great pleasure for us to have somebody come and visit. You know, you got to remember that. It's, uh, it's not all one-sided. We just like to have somebody come and say hello to us every once in a while in, in San Francisco. And we, we cherish the, 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 uh, the relationship we have here with Nina. And, you know, uh, uh, Councillor McGee, um, I knew your father very well, Mylon McGee. 
you know, back in the old days, I guess he'd be about the same age as me or maybe a year or two in between us. And uh, Councillor Delaney, Wexford man, my wife is from Wexford. She came from Bridgetown, you know where Bridgetown is? Not too far from, yeah, well, Phyllis, it was actually, I have to say about Phyllis that the greatest thing ever happened to me was to meet Phyllis Doyle. Phyllis, I met Phyllis in 1951, and it took us five years to make up my mind to get married because she, Phyllis came home a couple of times, and I was in the Army for a couple of years, and so at the end of the five, we got married, believe it or not. And Phyllis, you're going to be mad at me when I say this. Please don't get mad at me. <laughs> Today is our 53rd anniversary. She told me this morning, I said, John, you don't mention that tonight. Don't mention that. Don't mention that. So I said I wouldn't, but I lied. I'm sorry. That's the first lie I ever told. <laughs> but, but, but anyway, we have 18 grandchildren. Seven children, 18 grandchildren, three great-grandchildren. So, uh, and I think they all got Irish passports. All the, They're able to get them. So, you know, so we'll hang on to the old culture anyway, that's for sure. It's, it's just a great pleasure to come back to Nina and to meet all the old friends and, and to uh, drink a few pints. I had, went into the half bar the other morning and met a whole bunch of new friends, like uh, Councillor Sherry said. And, um, you know, there's such great friendship in this town. Like, I went into a bar, never been in a place in my life, and all of a sudden, you know, they, they got a few insults, naturally. That, that was okay. But, 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 you know, you felt at home. And that's the, that's the great thing about it, you know. Uh, you go anywhere, Nina, and feed at home. Anyway, thanks, Mr. Mayor, and thanks, your councillors, and uh, thank everybody, and thanks all my family for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Don. I'm going to be buried in in in, uh, in, uh, in the Holy Cross Cemetery in in Colma in in San Francisco. Yep, we have a grave there already. In fact, we even have a headstone. A headstone is already there, with their names on it, by the way, which is very unusual. <laughs> Good view, you know. I'd like to have a place with a view, you know. <laughs> but uh, that's but anyway, <laughs> that's important. How do you feel about death? Right now, I'm ready for it. I'm being realistic. I had a great life. Um, you know, I've, I've nothing to be sorry for. You know, I did everything I could. I helped people a lot. And I got help from a lot of people. It wasn't without. I didn't make do everything on my own. I got help from people. And I took advantage of it. And I tried to give something back. And that's it. So I have no problem with that. I'd hate, I'm not ready, I'm not, I don't want to do it. But by the same token, um, when you live to be 81, pushing 82, I think that's that's good, you know. I'd, I'd like to live till I'm 90 if I could, and maybe beyond. I said I had a big birthday party when I was 80, and the next one is going to be when I'm 90. <laughs> For a boy who started off in a small rural town in North Tipperary, things turned out good and for the millions of Irish people who've left for better things maybe it shows you can 
love where you come from, even when your destiny never allows you to return. Because for John, he's far away from friendly Nina. It's San Francisco where he'll be when he dies. His bones won't rest here in Ireland. But his heart certainly will. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doconone.